Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. This is episode 7 of season 2 and I'm your host Andy Davis. We're well into the new lockdown now, not that you'd know it's around the streets of South London here, but with news of a possible vaccine heading our way, maybe we've all had a reminder that this thing is finite and will, unlike the US presidential election, eventually come to an end. So life goes on and business goes on and we have a couple of really interesting guests for this episode that illustrate in very different ways where this industry is right now. First up, we have David Dare, the owner and managing director of Clive Christian Furniture. It's an iconic, ultra-premium brand, so his view of that sector of the market is fascinating. And seeing as he only took the company over a year ago, how has he coped with the unexpected events of 2020? And then we have Alan Margetts of Southeast retailer The Kitchen Store. Now, his point of view is really interesting as he has decided not to open his showrooms up, despite the guidance we've all seen saying that you can. For him, he says, it doesn't feel right morally. That's all coming up. But first, of course, it's Taylor's Media Shameless Plug Time, and it's another shameless plug for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2021. Entries are now open, it's totally free to enter, and any retailers and designers of kitchens and bathrooms in the UK and Ireland can enter. There's also a very special category for suppliers looking at how they supported their retail network during the COVID crisis. To find out more, go to kbbreview.com forward slash awards. And look out later this week for the first of our special bonus podcast episodes all about the awards. Right, let's go to the top of the ultra premium market now with one of the best known brands in that sector, which is Clive Christian Furniture. I am so delighted that joining me down the line now is owner and managing director David Dare. Hello, David. Are you there? Hello, Andy. Yes, I am. Thank you for spending us some time, sir. Thank you for coming on the podcast to talk us through the plans for, I think, what is one of the most iconic brands in this market, certainly the very, very top of this market. Can you give us the potted history of Clive Christian? Because most people know the name, of course, but many might be less aware of how it's got where it is. So can you give us the the short version of the history? Certainly. Clive himself first set up the company around 1978. As a kitchen designer, he started with one showroom in Cheshire, and he's soon developed what we've grown all to know and recognise as the signature architectural kitchen. And it was a kitchen that really sort of shocked the industry at that point in time with its huge statement island, chandeliers and ornate architectural elements. It had a sort of scale and grandeur that hadn't really been seen in the kitchen before, which was more of a functional room to that point. Over the years, Clive uh, invested heavily in in product and in marketing and and sort of became a global brand in the ultimate quality, opulent end of the the furniture and cabinetry market for every room in in some of the world's best homes. Grew the business over the years to around 40 or so showrooms all over the world and expanded the range beyond the kitchen to all aspects of the house, soft furnishings, cutlery, crockery uh, and ultimately perfume. And Clive launched the Clive Christian Perfume range some, I guess, 15 or 20 years ago, a business uh, which did very, very well. And of course, he continues to sell the world's most expensive perfume. As it now, we have a a factory in North Manchester, the original Clive Christian Furniture Factory. We serve about 12 showrooms today globally uh, with designers and agents in other countries. And, And we continue to make by hand the best British product uh, with a, a workshop team of around 55 people. 
if I've got my dates right in my head here, I think Clive himself, the man, left the company or exited the company, sold his stake in it about 2015. Yes. Is that right? That's right. So he personally has not been involved with it since then. You took over as owner of that, well, around about this time last year, wasn't it? It was maybe October last year. So just fill me in the gap. What happened between 2015 and 2019? So uh, the company was sold to Suter Investments, uh, a private equity business, uh, who ran the, the group Perfume and Furniture from 2015. And Clive had stepped out of the business, as you, as you quite rightly said at that point. And in 2019, Suter Investments took the opportunity to sell Clive Christian Perfume. So the group essentially split into two uh, and new owners arrived on the scene for Clive Christian Perfume. And at that point, the furniture business really was non-core for Suter Investments. So they decided to divest themselves of the business. And that's the point at which I entered. Yes, I think that's what I'm building up to, really. Before you came along last year, Clive Christian's a very, very strong brand, very well known. But is it fair to say it perhaps got a little stuck in its ways? I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's a fair criticism. It's become a little confused. And I would say the furniture business had become confusingly uh, bespoke, shall we say, to the market rather than a, a strong product business. And the marketing had really focused on those original core ranges like the architectural and ornate ranges and of course the marketplace had moved on so we, we have not necessarily been perceived to be a contemporary business uh, and we've maintained this slightly stuffier uh, more ornate image some of the words you've used to describe it opulent grandeur that's what i have in my head if you said a clive christian kitchen which, you know, it's very good to have that kind of identity for a particular look and a particular style. But as you say, tastes come and go in waves, don't they? And there's always going to be times when that's out of favour or in favour. Uh, yes, although there really is something to be said for timeless design. And I know that's a, uh, an often easily used word, but in particularly uh, in, in the instance of the Clive Christian Architectural Kitchen, which continues to be our, our best-selling product, that's the aspirational range, and it really is very, very much timeless in design. It's a brilliant exercise in marketing as well, the Clive Christian brand, I've always thought. I mean, as you say, Clive himself parted ways with the company in 2015. Have you met him? Yes, absolutely. Yes, we speak relatively regularly, and he remains, understandably, a, a friend to the business and a friend to the brand. Well, that's good to hear, because after you know, nearly 20 years writing about kitchens, I've never met him. And I did attempt to on various occasions, and I started to wonder whether he really existed. <laughs> he really do exist. Yeah, yeah you know, like he was, he was like a complete fabrication, this Wizard of Oz guy behind the scenes. Or is he just a guy f- called Clive from Manchester? Which is he? So, okay, so let's, let's bring this up to date a little bit here. You took over about a year ago. You are an entrepreneurial guy. You've got the perfect name to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> Thank you. The autobiography title writes itself. Dare to be different. Who dares wins? I mean, it's all there, isn't it? But clearly, you never put global pandemic in your plans. I think even you wouldn't have thought of that. So what's happened in the last year? Has your strategy unfolded as you would have hoped? Has it been hamstrung at all by what's going on? Fill us in on the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, the timing, as you sort of alluded to, was as inconvenient for me as it was for everybody else. But having bought the company at the very end of last year, I really wasn't expecting it to be closed down in March. So it brought some problems, but I think with problems, there have been opportunities. You know, the the practical truth of what happened was that all of our showrooms and the factory were closed from March till, oh, I'm going to say July, and then a phased opening from July up to 
maybe end of August, September. So, it, you know, it certainly affected us from a revenue perspective, but I think like a, a lot of people have discussed and maybe some people have discussed with you on the podcasts, it's also a good time for, for reflection. Now, I don't have the history in this company to reflect too deep on the past, but I, I have used the time wisely to surround myself with good people and to spend time getting the company into good shape for the future, not least including developing strategy. But I think we've had three to four months, really, of building foundations for the future. Everything from IT infrastructure to new products, the management team, the board of directors, a whole heap of work has gone on in the company that actually puts us in a position right now to emerge from this stronger. What plans can you tell us about? What is your approach for, for Clive Christian? Is it to make it even more ultra-premium and more exclusive, or is it to open a whole uh, line of showrooms? There's, there's hundreds of them across the world. What What is your, your fundamental idea? I think without sounding too basic, I think when you look to the future, it's always good to have one eye looking at the past. Uh, and from a Clive Christian perspective, the company has been very, very successful uh, in the past. So my plan in short terms is to recognise and to know what we're good at and to do that to an extremely high standard. So amazing product, amazing marketing, the foundations of the business. I think that what you'll see and maybe have already seen if you, if you follow us is a subtle shift away from entirely bespoke curated offerings to being clear that we have a good range of uh, products, a good set of collections, including some contemporary product. So there'll be a lot of product activity uh, starting in next year, including new contemporary offerings and marketing around that to hopefully change the perception of the business, recognizing that the architectural range is massively important to us, but that we can introduce new products which are Clive Christian enough to still shock and surprise the market. Yeah, because you're also up against you know a revitalised small bone, Mark Wilkinson, which you know I would put in the same kind of arena. Weirdly, for something that is so bespoke and so expensive, there's actually quite a lot of competition. How closely are you watching those competitors? Well, very closely, and of course, I've had more time to to devote to that over the last six months than I might ordinarily have had, having just just bought a business. I think you'll find that we are less retail focused than those companies. We're quite selective in terms of our markets. We focus principally on ultra high net worth, high net worth sector, and, and very often with multi-room. So yes, I'm keeping my eye very, very much on, on those competitors, but we, we do sit at a top at a fairly unique offering, I think. Realistically, you wouldn't get a lot of change out of 100 grand for a Clive Christian kitchen. Correct. So what is your definition of value for money? Well, that's a great question. Uh, um, whilst our products are indeed expensive, people don't only buy cabinetry and furniture. They also buy appliances and worktops in, in a similar level of quality and, and spend. And you're able to, to get value for money and you've been able to understand money, particularly in the area of quality and longevity. So whilst someone might think spending a hundred or £150,000 on a Clive Christian kitchen is, uh, is a lot of money, our approach to design and styling means that that kitchen will probably last 25 years, 35 years, 
it can be refreshed very easily. And in fact, it's a commodity that increases the value of your property. So it's very common to see the world's finest homes, particularly in the USA, where we're very strong, being sold because they are Clive Christian homes. So that there are other ways of approaching value and considering what, what that extra spend means to the homeowner. I think I asked that because I don't think just because people have a lot of money that they are necessarily frivolous with money. You know, they can afford very, very nice things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't question what they're spending their money on. Clearly to the normal person in the street, those kind of sums for a kitchen is absolutely unbelievable. But if you operate in a market where you're spending similar sums on a car, then these are reasonable amounts of money, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll, you'll waste it. No, absolutely. And, and I think uh, we, we can't assume that people who are prepared to spend at the very premium end of, of this market just have buckets of money to throw around. Very often people have earned their money by being very careful and being very clever and being very savvy. And at this level, they have choice. So we, we need to offer the best in materials. We need to offer the best in longevity, uh, the best in, in technology and have sustainable products that matter to people uh, that will add value ultimately to the homes. You're also paying, I think, for a level of experience. For example, I think on your website, you don't say get in touch with one of our sales guys, you say get in touch with our concierge. You're paying for that too, aren't you? Indeed you are. There's an experience that goes with our uh, our designers. There's, there's an experience which goes with the way that our showrooms would expect to treat a customer the, the whole purchasing experience from Clive Christian is designed that a customer may, for example, start with the kitchen, but ultimately would be so so happy with the experience and the quality and the value for money. Ultimately, that they'll return to us and take the laundry room, the boot room, the gun room, uh, the, the his and hers dressing room, the library or the bar. Yeah, well, you've just described my house, David. <laughs> I, I just have all of that in the loft. So look, let's take a more general look at that super premium market. Where is it at the moment, given everything that's happened? Do you see any difference in the way people are talking? Or is it people with money always have money and this kind of stuff doesn't really affect them? I don't think that it doesn't affect them. I don't think we can assume that. I think it would be dangerous. I know that a few other speakers on your podcasts have said that this market is kind of just deferred because the money still exists. I, I think that... That would be a dangerous assumption, and the economy next year and the year after is going to continue to be tough. My feeling is that with ultra-high net worth, net worth, and wealthy people generally, that having been forced to spend more time at home and less time on international travel, there are more investments in different types of rooms in the home, and maybe the main domestic dwelling rather than the, the, the second property in Banff or the home in Florida or the, the home in Monaco. So we, we are seeing, particularly in the ultra high net worth sector, more, more work in home offices and studies, bars, outside kitchens, and less, I would say, in the bedrooms and the bathrooms. Dressing rooms continue to be important. But ultimately, the main room in the home is, is, is the main domestic kitchen. Uh, and we've seen our inquiry level, not our purchase orders, but our inquiry level run through and increase for very, very large and very expensive kitchens through this whole time. So I think there's a lot of latent work in those few rooms. Is there a, a Clive Christian customer? I mean, do you have a demographic there? 
you could get footballers spending 150 grand on a kitchen and they're 23 or you can get big investment bankers or something that are, that are obviously much more mature who, who are you targeting that really is a great question it's a mixed demographic and and very often it, it can be perceived to be a slightly aging demographic that's because people will generally once they've bought a Clive Christian room, they will buy another. Or once they've moved home, they will come back to Clive Christian. So we have a demographic of people on the third, fourth, fifth homes, or maybe fourth, fifth, sixth rooms in, in their homes. So that, that's an important part of our business. We do have a private client office rather than the showrooms, which deals with, interestingly, with, with very private high net worth individuals. But very often through their estate managers or their private interior designers. So the demographic that the company needs to target and is targeting at the moment would be really people in in the trusted group, in the trusted circle around high net worth individuals. So developers, interior designers, architects, etc., etc. Right, okay, that makes sense. So you might never ever meet the client. That's very often the case. Okay, so how are you seeing 2021 play out? Obviously, we've had a lot of news in the last few days about vaccines and everything else. What's your view for 2021, the market? Well, there's a wave at the moment, isn't there, which is really pent-up work, which uh, hasn't been done because of a shortage of plasterers and, and you know, the people involved in, in the domestic project renovation trade. Um, but people still want those projects, and a lot of projects weren't finished. So... When I talk to people in the industry, I think the inquiry level for the next three to six months seems good. And most people are reporting good order intake. I would maybe exclude from that bedrooms and bathrooms, although uh, we'll see with that. I I think if we can get back to 2019 levels, that will be a stretch. As as an industry, I'm not talking about Claire Christian, the sector, there may be an initial hiatus, but then I think we will take a hit because the high, the high street's been hit, retail has been hit, uh, and this industry, I think, particularly struggles outside of a retail environment. Yes, I think that's a, a probably quite a reasonable assessment. I think there's another argument that says if a vaccine comes along and suddenly in the spring everything returns to some semblance of normality, everyone will spend their money and go on a plane. Everyone will give themselves that holiday of a lifetime they've always promised themselves because they have they feel they need to reward themselves. Weirdly, when the world opens up again thanks to a vaccine, this market might actually see a bit of a dip. Yeah, it could well do. And I think from my personal perspective, I can only talk about Clive Christian, I think it would be foolish of us to 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 see the the sudden increase that we're seeing at the moment running through a full year. So I, I think optimism, but cautious optimism, I think is what is where we see it. Thank you so much for all this, David. It's such an interesting story, and yeah, I really look forward to seeing where you'll go next with it. But of course, there's one very important question left to ask, and it's the one everyone dreads, but it's for the feature I call "Silence of the Laminates." So, David Dare. Owner, Managing Director, Clive Christian Furniture. What is your most positive feel-good movie? Well, particularly at this time of year, it's something of a guilty pleasure and something that me and uh, my children and my wife will be watching again and again is Elf. Will Ferrell, classic. Absolutely fantastic. Never fails to put a smile on your face. That's the first appearance of a Christmas movie. We are approaching that season. And you know what? What a, what a choice to start off with. Elf, oh my God, I've, I've got to have to go and watch that now. What a great movie. Enjoy.
Well, David, thanks so much for your time, sir. You're a very busy man, so I'll let you get back to your day job, but we'll catch up again soon. Great. Nice talking to you, Andy. Thanks, David. Okay, when it was revealed a week or so ago that showrooms were allowed to open during lockdown number two, if they chose to, most people did so, mostly by appointment only. But that's not to say everybody thought that way. So let's get the alternative point of view now from a retailer that perhaps hasn't been as enthusiastic to open the doors. And that's Alan Margetts from the Kitchen Store, who has several showrooms down here in the southeast. Hello, Alan. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm all right, sir. How are you getting on? What's the weather like where you are today? It's grey and miserable it's, here today. Yeah, it's pretty grey and miserable here too. I'm in Hove today. Yeah, at least you're near the sea. I'm just looking out of my one window in the loft. <laughs> Before we get into what you're up to during lockdown number two here, just fill us in. Tell us a little bit about the kitchen store. Okay, yeah. We, we have four four showrooms, Brighton and Hove, Worthing, Lansing, Horsham, and from this September, one in London. Company is about 16 years old now, and we're predominantly now selling German and British kitchens, partly, actually mostly to retail, but we do have some commercial work too. It's a not insubstantial retail outfit that you've got going there. So how has business been for you during lockdown number one? Lockdown number one, well, you know, I look back at this year and go, this, look, we're nearly in December now. There's been so many phases to this. It's almost difficult to remember what it was like then. But I guess, you know, now I'm contrasting lockdown two with lockdown number one and realising actually how closed down we really were. We had everybody working from home and then in phases furloughed people, but we never outwardly closed the business. You know, we were very much open in ways that, you know, for for whatever ways people get in touch with us, you know, video uh, walkthroughs, whatever it whatever it was. Looking back at that period now, you know, when we when we analyse leads and look at the type of inquiries that we had through lockdown, or first lockdown, what we can see is that the quality of the leads wasn't very good. Where we where we met people by video, we converted very few. You know, you could count them on the fingers of one hand, the ones that contacted us through lockdown and actually went to order. And what it tells us really is, I think I've seen this before in other periods of financial crisis or whatever, we've been through so many different bits over the years, that when there's a change in the market, it often brings out people that aren't your natural territory. So we found ourselves quoting for people that uh, maybe wanted an expensive kitchen than, than we'd sell normally, but thought it might be the time to try and angle one from us. All we found there were people further up the chain who had the money but didn't want to spend it at that point but they weren't our natural customer base. So we didn't, um, we, we weren't that successful. But, you know, having said that, where we have been doing well all year is we had some commercial work and we've got some, we've got some large projects. And thankfully, they started um, the beginning of the year and they, they barely ever stopped. So we've been able to carry on with our invoicing. And as one side of the business slowed down, the other one cracked on really. So financially this, this year, it's probably going to look okay, but it masks a lot of ups and downs. When you first heard about lockdown number two uh, and the rules were coming in again, non-essential retail needed to close, what was your gut reaction about whether to stay open or not? Well, my heart sank, but it wasn't a surprise. I've been spending a lot of time in London over the last few months, and you can see there from the, just the activity on the street that things were slowing down, so it wasn't a surprise. My gut reaction was that we needed to observe the rules and close. When, when we saw that the national chains were trying to uh, latch on to this sort of homeware essential services, I just felt it was wrong. Morally, that's not what the intention was. And I feel the same this time, really. Are we an essential service? I don't think we are. 
do we want to stay open for business in, in whatever form, even if we're physically closed? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's way more nuanced than maybe, you know, open or closed. But I didn't feel that we should have a you know team full of people waiting in store. So what we've pivoted to now is following the, the KBSA guidance last week that, you know, we will go in to open stores for qualified appointments, but we'll make sure people have been you know we understand when they want to order whether it's this side of christmas or early in the new year that's the first criteria and then we'll go in and unlock the doors for them and they can have the space to themselves but you know the chances of that happening i think are very very slim i think we've seen in the leads over the last week that actually people want to go back to talking to us digitally and we're doing our best to keep those inquiries alive Right, so as far as anyone walking past one of your showrooms is concerned, they are closed? Yes, yes. And there's a window saying, we're open. (laughs) Um, We're open, but we're physically closed. Here's the ways you can keep in touch. Our installations are still moving forward. We still have designers at home. And if you really want to meet us face to face, we will do. But we're not here today. So it's different. It's different to maybe you know what we've had over in London, for example, since September. We've been open by appointment. It's the only store where we've chosen to do that. But you know, people think about it before they come in. They don't just wander by and then turn up and then you know then make the call. So it works well. But I think there's also the other aspect, which is normally November, December is actually quite a busy time for us in terms of order taking. It's always a busy time in terms of installation and pre-Christmas, which is what we you know what we're busy doing now. But um, there's always a, a good level of inquiries. But what will happen in 2020? Is there a good commercial reason as well to say, actually, is it better just to sort of hibernate for a little bit, keep your overhead costs down where you can, and then come back fighting in January? I think there's going to be a huge level of optimism in the new year. We've just heard in the last few days about the, um, the vaccine. Yeah, look, it's not going to happen overnight. But I think people, without knowing all the details, will know deep down in their psyche somewhere that next year looks a lot better than this year. And probably as we go into the new year, there'll be a lot more to, to plan for and look forward to. So my feeling is as well from the commercial point of view, there's also a good reason just to sort of go, actually, how many people are going to want to place an order during lockdown? How many people are, are really going to engage us properly on our design services right now? Or will it be subdued? We come out in December and actually all that people are really, really thinking about is just having a decent Christmas with their families in whatever form that takes. And then coming back, you know, in that window after Christmas where we're traditionally very busy. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about it as a moral thing. You know, I mean, you're discussing the business case there, which is quite correct. But, you know, what you're saying is as the business owner, it just doesn't feel right for you to be flinging doors open. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, you know, we've never, we've never had one customer, as far as I'm aware, say to us, look, what on earth are you open for? I think on the whole, people are pleased they can engage with us. But to me, it just doesn't, you know, it's not in the spirit of what we should be doing. If I walk down a high street today, then there'll be plenty of retailers, not selling kitchens, plenty of retailers that can't open. There's a good case for those guys, you know, in terms of the level of traffic, the space in their stores to say, actually, look, this isn't a social environment. It's not a pub or anywhere where there's, you know, high risk areas. We, know, we should be open too. You've got to draw the line somewhere. And I, and I think the government, you know, I support the government on that. I don't think the communication has been good at all, all the way through. But in terms of the actual, what we're being asked to do, you know, it's a defined period. We know probably when we're going to come out of it. I mean, I think it's looking more likely that we will come out now around the second. It's not going to extend, I think, now. So I think there is a, you know, we've got to do our bit. Surely 
we're all going to be better off with this if we just crack on with it now, take the pain and get out the other side rather than this death by a thousand cuts. We seem to be taking too long to, to get round to the inevitable. And I think we need to be just, you know, taking it on the chin. I mean, that's especially true as your London store is effectively a stone's throw from Westminster as well, isn't it? I mean, you, yeah. you, Boris could be one of your customers. He could, he could indeed. I mean, the area is, yeah, busy, busy with politicians for sure. Yeah, so, you know, be careful what you say, Alan. <laughs> don't don't be too critical, will you? I know. When we're just we're just opposite from uh, MI6, actually. So maybe I should. Um, I'm being watched. I should I should be careful what I say. Oh yeah. Well, they're almost certainly listening again. But I'm pretty sure Boris is a big fan of the podcast anyway. So it's fine. Absolutely. So are you confident that this decision won't affect your business enough to to put you in any trouble? You know, are you are you confident that you'll be able to ride this lockdown however long it may last? Hopefully, only until the start of December. Enough to come out the other side of it in a re- in a reasonably comfortable way. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think from the beginning of this year, we, we we were saying in February, you know, cash. We we're talking about cash all the way through the year, and I've had a laser light focus on that all the way through. So I think yes, we can get through it. But the big issue for us is as every week goes by, your installation obviously your installs continue, so you're depleting your order book. So there is a sort of horizon where things get a little bit uncomfortable. I'm really banking on a strong return in the new year. If we don't have a good strong return January, February, then I think the picture looks very different because we'll be eating into more cash and we just won't have enough new balance payments, et cetera, coming in. So that's a concern. But this period now, no, we sort of factored that in really. And I also, and I think, you know, what the, the government extending the furlough scheme now, 80% until the spring, you know, I think that's um, that's given some clarity that we didn't have before. I mean, the other concern, I guess, would be that you might miss out on business that will go to competitors because they are more open than you are. Yeah, that's that's a concern, I think. But, you know, we've again, this time round, we've looked at what happened last time, the type of leads we've had. You know, and I checked bef- this morning bef- before I came to talk to you how many people have attempted to make an appointment, how many people have engaged through the website. And what we're seeing is lead levels tailed off, brochure requests, downloads, that sort of thing have continued. So we're seeing a lot of activity in research, but we're not seeing customers wanting to do face to face. But, you know, we've got if they did, we've got an answer to it, you know, and we would be able to see them in some form. But I, I'm not I'm not overly concerned about it. Maybe I should be. I just don't think we've seen in the past that that's been as, as a bigger concern as I would have thought, you know, lockdown one, very different when we know a lot more now about uh, what worked for us and what didn't work. And so if this was a six month period or we didn't have an end to it, then I think it would be a different sort of conversation. We'd be looking at you know, right, how do we adapt to survive? I think this one is much more about, OK, Let's um, look after, remotely look after all of our customers that want kitchens completed before Christmas. Very busy on that front. You know, we're very busy on service and installation operations, taking goods in. All of that continues. But I think the sales effort really is just going to be running on, on 50% until we come back properly. You touched on it a little already, but what do you think 2021 is going to be like? I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. I, th- I think that I think people get it. I think we all want to move on in one way or another. And we can see now, look, there's 20,000 people a day at the moment getting COVID, but the tests are higher. Hospital admissions are down death, but they're, they're, you know, they're still at a significant level, 14,000 people in hospital today. We've got to get through the winter. But I think we'll all realise when we come back in the new year, we'll, we'll, there'll be a level of optimism in all of us and sentiments, everything. And I think that's been my thing all year long. It's, it was different in lockdown one as you go into 
as you go into the summer, the days are brightening, people could spend time outside. I sort of feel now this is a bit, a bit of a period of hibernation and we're better to keep our heads down a bit, come back fighting in the new year. And I think there will be pent up demand in the market. You know, I think it's inevitable in August, July, August time, we definitely saw an increase in, um, in business. We've, we're in, you know, we're installing the results of that right now. And I think the same will happen as we come out early, early part of next year. Well, I mean, that is a really positive attitude, uh, Alan, and thank you so much for, for giving us that alternative point of view about about opening or not. I think it would be therefore very interesting to see if you have an alternative point of view to the most important question vexing the industry, which is, of course, what is the most positive feel-good film to sit and watch when you want to cheer yourself up? We all know that's what everyone's really thinking. Absolutely. It is, of course, time for the silence of the laminates. Alan, what is your most positive feel-good film? Easy, easy, Andrew. The Goonies, my favourite childhood film. Childhood? Are you kidding me? That is, I'm 48 years old and it's still a fantastic film. <laughs> yeah, as a kid. I loved it as a kid and I still love it now. You can't beat The Goonies. What a choice that is. That is up there. And again, I now want to go and watch it. <laughs> this is taking up a huge amount of my time, if I'm absolutely honest with you. I do a 15-minute podcast and then go and watch a film for two hours. <laughs> Thank you so much, and thank you for spending a little bit of time with us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Cheers, Andrew. Cheers, Alan. Catch up soon. That's it for this week. A huge thanks to David Dare of Clive Christian Furniture and Alan Margetts of The Kitchen Store. Go to the episode description for links to their businesses, and don't forget to check out the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2021 at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. And look out later this week for the first of our special bonus awards episodes. See you next time.